Church, I do want to ask you this morning, do you ever doubt the gospel? Do you ever struggle with doubting what we just sang? How confident are you that the gospel we confess is actually from God? Like, are you convinced that the message of Jesus' saving death and resurrection is a message that actually has come from the one true God in heaven to us here on earth? We live in a world of competing worldviews, a world of competing religions, a world of competing holy books. What reason do we have to believe that the gospel alone is exclusive and true and trustworthy, that it is actually a word from God? How do we know that someone didn't just make it up? How do we know that someone didn't just come up with it and didn't just happen to, to catch on, just a clever idea that went viral? Related to these questions is another set of questions about just the nature of faith in the gospel. Is the gospel something that we're called just to believe with blind faith? Is there any evidence for the truth of the gospel? Or is believing the gospel something that we're supposed to do apart from evidence? Just believe. Is the gospel something that we are called to believe because we have good reason to believe it? Well, the Bible itself gives us the answer to this question. We should believe the gospel because we have good reason to believe the gospel. We should believe the gospel because we have good reason to believe it. When we see the gospel presented in the scriptures, its hearers are never told, just believe. Rather, when the gospel's presented in Scripture, there's always a call to believe, as one commentator puts it, based on certain specific, irreversible, and irreducible historical events. Based on certain specific, irreversible, irreducible historical events. You see, the gospel proclaims good news that's embedded in real history. The gospel proclaims a record of God's in-time, real-world intervention through His Son, Jesus. It's a message about the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, His ministry in Galilee, His death in Jerusalem, His resurrection appearances to up to 500 people, and His ascension from the earth. And what we're going to see this morning is that we can add one more event to this list, the conversion of the Apostle Paul. The conversion of the Apostle Paul. You can open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. We're continuing our series through Galatians called No Other Gospel. The title of this morning's message is Not Man's Gospel. Not Man's Gospel. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church that is turning to a counterfeit gospel, a false gospel. One of the strategies of those who are teaching this counterfeit gospel is to convince the Galatians that it's actually Paul who has distorted the gospel. So what we have here is a classic he said, he said situation. Parents know all about this, right? Your children get in a fight, and when you ask what happened, they both say, he did it. She did it. Well, this is what's going on in Galatia. The false teachers are claiming that Paul has distorted the gospel. Paul is claiming that these false teachers have distorted the gospel. You can see the challenge. How could Paul persuade the Galatians that the gospel he preaches is the true and trustworthy gospel? And here's the reason that this 
is so incredibly relevant for us today because the gospel that Paul preached is the same gospel that's written in the New Testament. And it's the same gospel that we confess. It's the same gospel we just sang about. Is it true? Is it trustworthy? Is it actually from God, or is it man's gospel? So over the next few weeks, we're going to see how Paul uses a number of arguments to make his case for the truthfulness of the gospel. And this morning, we're going to look at his first argument in Galatians 1, verses 11 through 24. Galatians 1, verses 11 through 24. Let's read this passage. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. What I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So Paul begins this section of the letter with a bold declaration in verses 11 and 12. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's claim. I received the gospel from Jesus Christ himself. I didn't go to school to learn it. I didn't read a book about it. I didn't hear a podcast on it. No, I received the gospel straight from the top. The gospel I preach is true and trustworthy because it comes from the Lord Jesus himself. That's Paul's claim. But how does he back that claim up? Others in history, we know, have claimed to receive a direct word from God too, right? Paul's not the only one who's ever said this, so what evidence does Paul have to substantiate this claim? Well, his first line of evidence is actually his own story. Paul substantiates his claim that he received the gospel from Christ himself by pointing to a radical transformation that has occurred in his own life. And here's the main idea that we're going to look at this morning. Paul's radical transformation testifies to the truthfulness of the gospel. Paul's radical transformation testifies to the truthfulness of the gospel that Paul preached. He tells the story of his transformation in these verses in three stages. The first stage we see is his former life in Judaism. Paul's former life in Judaism. Paul says in verse 13, For you've heard of my former life 
in Judaism. Before we even get into what that former life entailed, we need to recognize, again, the bold claim Paul is making here. You know, for us, living in the 21st century, several thousand years of history behind us, we naturally view Judaism and Christianity as two separate religions, don't we? But when Galatians was written, Christianity was seen by almost everyone as nothing more than a Jewish sect. The apostles were Jewish men who believed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So then if Jesus was the one who fulfilled the Jewish hope, why would Paul speak of his former life in Judaism? Well, it's because Paul had come to understand something. He understood that by fulfilling God's promises to Israel, Jesus had also opened a new way to the Gentiles to come to God. The structures of the Old Testament Judaism were no longer necessary for someone to be in a right relationship with God. Jesus himself was the way. And because the Jewish people rejected Jesus, Paul could distinguish between Judaism as a Jesus-rejecting way and Christianity. These now offered two distinct ways of salvation. Paul, Paul could put a clear line in the sand and say, I had a former life in Judaism, but now I have a new life as one who follows Jesus. But of course, Paul's writing this as someone who at first himself didn't receive Jesus either. He was, at one point, one of those rejectors of Jesus. As he reminds the Galatians of his former life in Judaism, he focuses on two things that he sought to do. He sought to destroy the church, and he sought to establish his own righteousness. That was his former life in Judaism. I wanted to destroy the church of Jesus, and I want to establish my own righteousness before the Lord. So first he says, I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. So you see, in, in his former life, when Paul looked at followers of Jesus and the gospel that they proclaimed, here's what Paul saw. He saw a group of people who claimed that a condemned and crucified man from Nazareth was the promised son of David. Not only did these people believe in a crucified Messiah that they claimed had risen from the dead, they worshipped him as the Son of God, even though there's only one God who's worthy of worship. On top of that, these people were teaching that this crucified Messiah had displaced the necessity of keeping the law and the necessity of worshiping the temple and to have a right relationship with God. He had displaced all these things. From Paul's perspective, as a faithful Jew, these believers in Jesus were nothing less than blasphemers, leading people away from God. And as for his role in that, Paul was zealous for the Old Testament scriptures as he understood them, and so he actually ended up fulfilling the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples in John 16, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Jesus said there were people like that, they're going to think they're serving me by killing you. That was Paul. Paul was convinced that Christianity was a blasphemous falsehood, and in his commitment to serve God, he took it upon himself to do whatever he could to wipe it out entirely. He sought Christians out. He seized them from their homes. He even gave approval to their execution. He wanted nothing less than to destroy Jesus' followers. At the same time, as he was destroying the church, seeking to destroy the church, he was also seeking to establish his own righteousness. He reminds the Galatians in verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. You see, Paul was a Pharisee. He belonged to that same group of people that so often appear opposing Jesus in the Gospels. 
So when he said he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers, he's speaking to the fact that he believed if he kept the traditions, he would be in the right with God. If he kept the traditions, he would be in the right with God. And so he didn't merely observe traditions as a student might observe the rules. No, Paul was zealous for them. He lived with a passionate pursuit of the strictest holiness. He was zealous for ritual purity. He was zealous for Sabbath keeping. He was zealous for meticulously holding to Jewish tradition. And he was excelling in these things. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was like an up-and-coming celebrity rabbi. In the world of Judaism, Paul had everything going for him. And this is important to his story. Consider how different this is from a typical salvation testimony that you might hear. Often when someone speaks about their former life and they've come to Christ, you'll you'll hear them speak of doubts they had or questions or a sense of emptiness or dissatisfaction. For instance, Martin Luther has described his intense battles with sin and guilt that led him to seek the Lord and His righteousness. Or recently we had a member of our church go to Morocco. He shared about how Muslims would read the Quran and the Quran was inconsistent and, and in, that, in that emptiness that we're finding, they, they turned to a new way. In most testimonies, there's some problem, some crisis, some doubt, some question, some rock-bottom moment that leads someone to turn and seek the Lord. But that's not the case for Paul. Nothing like that was happening in Paul's life. As, as one commentator says, there's no evidence that Paul carried out his work with a guilty conscience, Burdened by self-doubt, hindered by second thoughts, he was a happy and successful Jew. And there was nothing in his pre-conversion life that could have prepared him for a positive response to the gospel. There was no explanation for it. In his former life in Judaism, Paul was convinced, and Paul was committed, and Paul was content. And yet, something happened. Something happened to Paul that changed everything. And this brings us to the second stage of his story, Paul's calling from God. Paul's calling from God. Now as Paul moves to the next part of his story, he actually goes back before he goes forward. In fact, he goes very, very far back. Look at what Paul writes in verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born. See, as Paul tells his story, he wants us to know that his story was written long ago. It was written before he'd ever done anything good or bad. It was written before he was even born. According to Paul, the God who knit him together in his mother's womb already had a predetermined plan to save him and use him from the very beginning. Paul's story highlights this divine plan of God for his life. Before I was born, he set me apart. Then Paul says, God called me by his grace. He called me by his grace. This word called is one of Paul's favorite gospel words. When Paul says God called someone, he doesn't mean that God reached out to see if he'd get a response. He means that God effectively summoned someone. See, God's calling is not like me trying to coax my dog inside the house. She just runs away. And then I look like a fool chasing her around the yard. No, God's calling is like Jesus commanding Lazarus to come out of his tomb. As Paul thinks about his story, he thinks about the fact that God called him. He summoned him. He drew him. He awakened him. He effectively brought Paul to himself. He highlights God's divine plan, God's divine call. 
And then Paul tells the Galatians what actually happened to him. He was pleased to reveal his son to me. We can read the story about this in Acts 9. Paul's on his way to Damascus. He has official papers in his hands that give him authority to seize any followers of Jesus that he could find in the synagogues. And again, it's not like he was on the way with all these doubts in his mind about Jesus and wrestling with what he should do and just decided, I can't go and I need to search this more. No, he was on his way to persecute the church. And then we read this in Acts 9. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And this was the moment that changed everything for Paul, a blinding revelation of Jesus Christ himself. And in this moment where Paul went physically blind, Paul could finally see a revelation occurred. He finally realized that everything the Jesus followers had been preaching was true and everything he believed about Jesus was false. He realized Jesus really is the Messiah and the Son of God. He realized that his followers truly are God's people. This is God's assembly. And what's especially important to know is that Paul realized that day that salvation is by grace alone. He realized that day salvation is by grace alone. This is why he shares the story the way he does, to emphasize the grace of God. Grace is the reason God set Paul apart before he was born. God called Paul by his grace. God was pleased to reveal his son to Paul because salvation is by grace. Why would God save this Pharisee who was zealously persecuting his people and trying to establish his own righteousness? to demonstrate his grace. You see, there was nothing in Paul that merited God's salvation. Paul had done nothing but make himself undeserving of God's salvation. But God called Paul nevertheless. God called Paul freely as a gift because of his own will to show him saving mercy. Paul did nothing to contribute to the salvation. He was saved on the basis of grace alone. Before we move into the third stage of Paul's story, I want to pause here and ask a simple question to you. Why should God save you? Why should God save you? If your answer to that is, I've tried to be a good person, or if it's, I've prayed a prayer to accept Jesus into my heart, if it's, I've been baptized, if it's, I'm faithful to read my Bible and go to church and pray and give, if your answer to that question has anything to do with what you have done, then you've not yet believed the gospel. You're not a Christian. The gospel is a message of salvation by grace alone. Salvation is the gift of God to undeserving sinners. Stop trying to earn it and receive that gift today by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. This salvation by grace through faith in Jesus is what Paul discovered when God called him. And this experience of God's grace, this revelation of Jesus, it radically transformed Paul's life. This brings us to the third stage of his story, Paul's new life in Christ. Paul's new life in Christ. When God called Paul, he didn't just call him to a private, personal faith. God had a mission for Paul. You see it in verse 16. He was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. We see here that Paul's calling was not just a calling to salvation. It was a calling to ministry. Specifically, Paul was called to be an apostle 
to the Gentiles. He was entrusted with the gospel message which he had so zealously sought to destroy, and he was commissioned to take that gospel to the nations. And from the moment that Paul received that call, he obeyed that call. In verses 17 to 24 of our passage, Paul is giving a lot of details about where he went in the years following his conversion. Now, we're going to come back to these verses next week because it's closely related to the next part of his argument. But what I want to point you to is the way this paragraph ends in verses 23 and 24. The churches of Judea were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So here we see Paul's radical transformation. He went from being a zealous persecutor of the church to being a zealous builder of the church. He went from being a destroyer of the faith to being a preacher of the faith. He went from being a Jewish terrorist to being an evangelist to the Gentiles. He went from being a preacher of salvation through law to being a preacher of salvation by grace alone. How did this happen? What could account for this new life? It happened through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It happened because Paul encountered Jesus himself. And again, we can't miss the reason that Paul's sharing all of this with the Galatians. The change that happened in him when Jesus appeared to him confirms that he really did receive the gospel from Jesus. He's not telling his testimony just to tell his testimony. He wants them to know, if this happened to me, then my claim that I received the gospel from God is true. Paul's radical transformation testifies to the truthfulness of Paul's gospel. And church, let me remind you this morning of Paul's gospel, according to his other letters in the New Testament. Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Philippians 2, Being found in human form, Christ humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that's above every name. Colossians 1, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created, all things were created through him and for him. These are precious declarations from Paul about the person and work of Christ. How can we be confident they're true? By not forgetting the radical transformation of the man who wrote them. Paul is the one who says... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul's the one who said that he's the one who died on a cross and now has the name of Lord above every name. This is the same Paul who was persecuting Christians for doing, saying, believing that very thing. He wrote these verses. These precious verses were written by a man who had decidedly rejected Christ, who passionately sought to destroy anyone who believed these things. 
But by his grace, God chose him, and God called him, and God revealed his son to him, and God transformed him. And this transformation testifies still today to the truthfulness of this gospel that he preached and that we confess. Paul's story should strengthen our confidence that the gospel is not man's gospel. It truly is the gospel of God. Paul's radical transformation testifies to the truthfulness of the gospel. And you know what, church? We can say even more than that today. It's not only Paul's transformation that can strengthen our confidence in the gospel. It's the transformation that has occurred in each one of us as well. It's not only Paul's story, it's your story, and it's my story. Of course, in certain ways, Paul's story is necessarily unique. Right? He was called to be an apostle. He saw Jesus Christ uh, in a literal way. His transformation testifies to the trustworthiness of the gospel he preached. So necessarily unique from our story, but in other ways, Paul's story is the exact same story of every follower of Christ. And our stories also witness to the truthfulness of the gospel. Let's think about how our story and his story are the same. Just as Paul had a former life living as an enemy of Christ, so Scripture tells us that we have all lived as enemies of Christ. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of our flesh. Titus 3 tells us we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing away our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us we were sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. This was us. We all lived a life of rebellion against God. We all rejected Him. We all opposed His kingdom. We all sought our own path of salvation. I want you to think about your former life this morning. Who were you before God saved you? What kind of life were you living? What sins enslaved you? What passions controlled you? What did you look for to find identity in? Whose kingdom were you building? See, we all have a former life as enemies of God. And like Paul, if you are a follower of Christ, it's because God set you apart before you were born. Consider what we read in Ephesians 1. He chose us in Him. God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Embrace this truth today, church. If you're believing in Jesus today, it's because before God ever created the world, he chose to make you his. He set you apart as a recipient of his love. He decided ahead of time he'd make you his child. Your salvation was written in his book before the foundation of the world was laid. And then in time, though you were living as his enemy, like Paul, a moment came when God called you by his grace. 
Now, from a merely human perspective, this call came to you when someone preached the gospel to you and you, you heard it and you made the decision to repent and believe in Jesus. But consider this morning, why did you respond to that call and why have others in your life not responded to that call? Only because he effectively called you by grace. You responded to God's call because God's call to you was a heart-transforming and irresistible call to himself. And what is it that made that call so irresistible? What was it that made it so effective? Well, like Paul, God was pleased to reveal his son to you. Now, of course, we've not seen Jesus the way the Apostle Paul saw Jesus, but that doesn't mean that God hasn't given us a true and real revelation of the glory of his son. When Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus told him, Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, anyone who confesses that Jesus is the Christ has had that revealed to them by the Father. The Father first revealed the truth of Christ to them. He opens the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus with the eyes of faith. Paul knew about Jesus, but Paul saw Jesus with the eyes of faith when he was blind. If you're believing in Jesus today, it's because God was pleased to reveal him to you. And if God has truly done all of this in you, then like Paul, you have been saved by grace alone. You have been saved by grace alone. And like Paul, you too now have a new life in Christ. Your former life is just that. It's, it's the way you used to live. But now, because of his grace, because of his good pleasure to reveal Jesus to you, a radical transformation has taken place in you. And you now live for Jesus. That's not just Paul's story, that's your story, it's my story. And these stories demonstrate the truthfulness of the gospel. So when you look around the room, Redeemer, do you realize that each member of this church represents a story of God's transforming gospel grace? I encourage you this morning, get to know these stories. Be encouraged by them. Share them with each other. Let them strengthen your confidence in the power of the gospel. And then like the churches did when they heard Paul's story, let's glorify God for what he's done in one another's lives. Because salvation is by grace alone, let's give God all the glory for the work of his transforming gospel in our midst. And then church, let's take this gospel to those who have not yet been transformed. Let's take this gospel to those who have not yet been transformed. The story of Paul's transformation should strengthen our confidence in the gospel the stories of each other's transformations should encourage us in the power of the gospel. But church, if the gospel really is true, if we're convinced that it's true, if it really does transform, if we really believe this and we've really experienced this, then let's embrace the call that we have to go and preach it to others. When God saved Paul, his zeal didn't disappear. It was just redirected. It's redirected according to the truth of the gospel. His former zeal to persecute the church was transformed into a zeal to build the church. And though we've not been called to apostleship, we have been called by Jesus, go make disciples of all nations. So because we know the gospel is true, because we ourselves have experienced that the gospel is the power of God to salvation, let's be zealous to take this good news to our community and our region and our world. Let's take the hope of the gospel to others and let's watch and pray with anticipation that God will do the same transforming work in the lives of others that he's done in us. And when he does, let's glorify him for his grace.